This evening I'd like to speak about compassion and it's a good time uh, in terms of this is a, about the third day of the practice and the, um, there's a saying in the Dharma that <clears throat> on the third day it's called Maximum Dukkha Day and <laughs> everybody knows I think that Dukkha means suffering. So it's just about the time when you know we start settling down into mind, body and it gets quiet and more clear and we're, we're really able to see what the reality is of this mind-body, what's there when we're not uh, distracting ourselves so much uh, with our responsibilities, of course, those are important, but here we have this simplicity, this silence, the seclusion, and all these supports to help us uh, see more clearly to go more deeply into our hearts and minds. You might be hearing me or or Mark say the word karuna. Karuna is from the ancient Pali language, the language that was spoken during the time of the Buddha. And uh, this means compassion. And I'll be giving some uh, definitions, descriptions of it uh, from the Dharma side of understanding it. So first I want to talk about compassion in the context of the four divine emotions or what is called the divine abodes. Uh, In Pali, those words are Brahma, Vihara, or Vihara. Brahma means uh, divine. Brahma realms are realms of existence. They say where there's, it's just a divine uh, existence, abode, another realm, not the human realm. And um, vihara means abode. So the four uh, Brahma viharas mean the four divine abodes. But these are not abodes outside of ourselves. These are actually abodes within our own hearts where we can live. And these four divine emotions or divine abodes teach us how to live in, in that place in our hearts. So the first one is metta, and the second one is compassion, and the third one is uh, altruistic joy or sympathetic joy, and the fourth one is equanimity. So I'm just going to give a very short description of all of them at first. So this first one, metta, is a very basic foundational uh, sense of goodwill, goodness of heart towards oneself and towards all beings. Mark spoke about it more extensively last night, and it's basically this goodness of heart that allows us and supports us to live in harmony, in harmony with others, in harmony with with ourselves as well. And so it can naturally radiate these goodwill, this goodwill and these good wishes Uh, When the energy doesn't need to face dangerous or unsafe conditions, then of course this natural goodwill is there to uh, connect with others, which is of primary importance to us as human beings, this ability to connect with others and to feel the connection of others towards ourselves also. So, Karuna, oh, let me say more about that. Um, this metta or love, what metta or loving kindness is. 
took this from an older talk, um, where I found these various um, singular words in, in different dictionaries, poly dictionaries, different descriptions from other of our teachers. So metta has a multi-significant uh, understanding with these. And when we hear these terms, you might understand. It's kindness, not just kindness, but unconditional kindness. It's a kindness that we can feel, perhaps maybe not all the time, but we can come to feel a kindness even towards our enemies or towards these people or beings that um, we're not quite open to all the time. We can come to feel this unconditional friendliness and goodwill towards all beings. It has a sense of benevolence and fellowship. Fellowship meaning a connectivity, really a connection with our hearts to one another. And it's nonviolent. It's described in some places in the um, ancient scriptures as a strong wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings including oneself. A strong wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings, including oneself. And it's not based on any self-interest. Not at all. So, um, to promote one's own interest is primordial, of course. It's a deep, basic motivation. But we, and we don't put that aside but metta goes beyond that so that it feels the same interest for the goodwill of others as well. So what happens when we do metta practice or when we're just basic good human beings and that metta practice can naturally arise, there, the result is this, uh, there is a tremendous inner power that we feel in us because we learn that we can really trust ourselves to respond in kindness. Maybe we don't feel it right away, but we know that when things settle down, we can touch base with that. Our hearts can allow that to come up. We can feel that we can respond to life in that way. So this is a power which preserves and protects and heals both oneself and others. So this is a natural resource of the heart and the mind. And it's said that when we do this practice of metta, as we have been doing these past days, we are mining that. We're mining that natural resource that's there. It's there. It's just that you know we're trying to stay in touch with it over and over again instead of letting the old habit patterns take over, as Mark was describing uh, last night and, and part of today too. In the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the ancient texts of the Buddha's teachings, it said that the heart is, with metta, the heart is naturally releasing loving kindness when there's that basic goodwill, that basic goodness there. It naturally releases it. So in our practice of metta, we're learning to get in touch with that over and over again. So we're inclining the mind there. 
no matter what happens, we get distracted, we come back to our intention, uh, we offer a, a phrase of goodwill because we're inclining the mind there over and over and over again. One of the most beautiful and powerful quotes of the Buddha that stays with me a lot is um, what a person ponders on over and over again to that their mind will naturally incline. What a person ponders on over and over again to that their mind will naturally incline. So that's what we're doing in the metta practice. You know, it's, it's just like anything else, playing the piano or any musical instrument or anything we want to learn. We have to incline the mind there. And as, as uh, we've both been saying, each time <coughs> we do that, a seed is planted or a little drip of metta is filling the bucket, so to say, filling our hearts up or connecting with what's already there so that we can learn that that's very nearby. It's very natural. It's very accessible. So it has this, this very um, powerful part uh, connection with our practice. So that's metta. And compassion, sometimes you'll hear the word just automatically come from us, karuna, is described as in the teachings as this quivering of the heart in response to suffering, the quivering of the heart. And at the first time I heard that, I wondered, what does that mean anyway? You know, the, But when I started really practicing compassion on purpose, I realized that energy in my heart was more and more awakened and I could feel that quivering. It was pretty palpable. And that quivering wanted to do something, wanted to act in compassion to whatever I saw with myself or another. And so uh, it's, it can be quite palpable and physical even, this kind of quivering of the heart. There's a I don't know if it's around here, but there's a um, a painting of Green Tara in the Tibetan tradition. How many of you are familiar with Green Tara? Yeah, and if you notice, the Green Tara is sitting there, and um, the one leg of the Green Tara is is out, and it's ready to leap into action. That shows the readiness because Green Tara represents compassion, it's the readiness to act, the readiness to step forth, to help, to do something, because we feel that quivering of the heart to actually connect with with one another, even connecting with oneself. So um, I read from Trungpa Rinpoche in in the Tibetan tradition that this karuna or compassion is experiencing the reality of life with an open heart. Experiencing the reality of life with an open heart. Not open and vulnerable in a weak way, but in a way that's able to face the difficulties of life 
inwardly and outwardly and really um, not shrink away or not push away or not turn away from them. So this uh, compassion is not a weak state of mind. just want to quote um, one of our colleagues, Sharon Salzberg, which um, she's a very, very uh, compassionate person and very strong in the Dharma. And she said, sometimes we think that to develop an open heart, to be truly loving and compassionate, means that we need to be passive, to allow ourselves, uh, to allow others to abuse us, to smile and let anyone do what they want with us. Yet this is not what is meant by compassion. Quite the contrary, compassion is not at all weak. It is the strength that arises out of seeing the true nature of suffering in ourselves, in the world. And compassion allows us to bear witness to that suffering, whether it is in ourselves or others, without fear. It allows us to name injustice without hesitation and to act strongly with all the skill at our disposal. To develop this mind state of compassion is to learn to live, as the Buddha put it, with sympathy for all living beings without exception. That means the same as compassion for the perpetrators as far as including, uh, of course, compassion for those who um, who are harmed. So I'll focus on compassion uh, more, but I want to just say the two others to uh, name the four Brahma-viharas. So there's metta first, then compassion, and then the third one is sympathetic joy, or sometimes it's called altruistic joy. So this is joy for the joy of another. Uh, it's, It's specifically joy for the joy of another. Because what this is overcoming is jealousy and envy. This is the main thing that this uh, sympathetic, altruistic joy works towards, overcoming those, uh, those parts that come up in, in us as human beings, jealousy, envy. To turn that, to turn the mind towards being happy for another person's happiness. So the fourth one is equanimity. It's said that equanimity empowers all the other three because it renders balance to them so that we're not lost in uh, in either, like for metta, the opposites of metta are attachment and aversion. But we feel a balance there where we're not not, um, in attachment or in aversion, we're, we're really in the middle where we can feel the balance of equanimity and there's no reactivity to what's happening. So you can think of equanimity also as the absence of reactivity. That makes the mind much more balanced and very clear. So it's said of these four Brahma-viharas, that compassion is the most like awareness, the simple awareness in the insight, vipassana practice we do, because it can face all experiences 
without striking out and turning away. So um, at its best, it does that. Sometimes awareness is kind of weak. It doesn't have all the other uh, helpers along that's helping it. Um, But, you know, there are other states of mind that actually help uh, awareness be strong. So that's another of the numbers. I'm not going to go there. But it is uh, very, very much like compassion. Uh, Awareness is like that because uh, compassion-like awareness helps us to face what's happening without pushing it away, without covering it up. Just be just straight with it, just really connected with whatever's happening at the moment in our hearts, or maybe that, you know, it's taking a while to be there because of conditions in our life. We have um, experiences that are really hard to bear, or just experiences in life where if we had compassion and could really face it, we might not go through so much fear or anger. I mean, the fear that is unnecessary, not the fear that helps us to be safe, but there's a lot of fear that we can experience that isn't totally necessary at that moment. So, in our Dharma lives, this is one of the most important factors that support our opening to the Dharma, because it said that Compassion is the main, uh, one of the main factors of all the beautiful qualities of mind that help us open to the first noble truth. And those of you, all of you, have been in the Dharma long enough to know there are these four noble truths. I'm not going to go through those, but the first one is a noble truth of suffering. And it's been wrongly or um, not well translated in the West to mean uh, the translation has been life is suffering so what a bad way to invite people to the Dharma you know life is suffering it actually in Pali there's two words it means dukkha satcha satcha means truth and dukkha means suffering so when you put those two together, the exact translation is, there is the truth of suffering. And um, I might uh, expand on this a little more another time, but when I first came to the Dharma, I came from um, a a very devout um, family in Christianity. I was raised as a Catholic. And um, I thought, you know, that suffering was like, it it was the thing to do, of course, you know, that if we're suffering, then we're noble. (laughs) But uh, I didn't, I was always trying to be like, you know, Mother Mary, or maybe, uh, you know, a female form of Jesus or something. And it was like, uh, I don't think I can ever get there. But when I heard the the Four Noble Truths and the first Noble Truth, the truth of suffering, that was a fact to me. And that was like where I was starting. And then there were all these steps towards the end of suffering, which I thought, well, you know, I heard about the Eightfold Noble Path, and I thought, I could take those steps. 
and it made really good sense to me. And that's, that's why I started on my path here in the Dharma many years ago. So it's said that we really need to open to this first noble truth, to this fact of suffering, or else what we'll do with our lives is just try to avoid it. Whenever it comes up inside, or if it's too much for us on the outside, we just, you know, grumble and whine about it, or complain about it, and maybe we try to do something about it, and sure, we can do a lot for it, and we have to stand up and do our part. But where we forget is to look inside and to see what we can do within ourselves so that we're not spending so much energy trying to change something outside of us when we haven't done as much for changing what we can inside of us to face the reality of life. So we need to face um, this with that, with that kind of strength of compassion. Just getting back to our metta practice, um, how metta is like this basic goodness that turns to suffering. It can turn to suffering. And when metta turns to suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out of that. So some of you, a few of you today in, in different the different groups have talked about it's easier when something comes up and you see one sees a person or um, oneself suffering, then you know you you can really open to that more than kind of like the basic metta, the basic goodness of metta. Something can strike you, your heart, that helps it to open and be with whatever's happening. So that's what can happen a lot when we do metta practice. You find out that, oh, when I thought about somebody in my family that I could easily open to, I just thought, well, that person has this suffering and it just would open my heart. Or one person, a couple of people even said today that even when facing um, the tyrannical persons uh, that we deem tyrannical in alive today, we have compassion for them. I myself feel that too, because if they weren't um, suffering, they probably wouldn't be acting in the way they are. So that makes perfect sense to me. So when we have this kind of basic goodness that turns towards suffering, compassion is born out of that. It transforms the metta into compassion. So it's, it's fine if this happens in your practice. You know, you might um, need to have ways to handle it at the time. Sometimes the wording changes a little bit. But you can use the same metta phrases and when it turns towards compassion, towards uh, something suffering, a person suffering, you'll feel that compassion. You don't even need to change the phrases. Usually the compassion phrases actually acknowledge the suffering. There's a, there are words there that acknowledge suffering, like, may you be free from your pain and suffering. But if you're feeling it, you know, and you, and you have that compassion there, that's already there. 
you don't really need to change the words. You just can know that that's happening. That's compassion. So uh, when, when we're sitting and we're doing metta and we feel or we sense the suffering come up in ourselves or coming up in what we're facing, we might feel compassion, but there's other things that might come up as well. And this is to be known for us that are doing uh, metta practice when um, we see the suffering of another. The, the, other, the opposite of compassion may come up where we feel a sense of cruelty towards that person or what that person might be experiencing towards the, hab- the habit pattern of that person. We might feel a sense of cruelty towards, like when we feel aversion or hatred, then we hate ourselves for feeling that. We can see that we can, we can double the, the suffering that way. So it's really helpful for us to know what the far enemy of compassion is. That means the opposite of compassion may come up, and it may come up in our practice. So when we feel that, when we know that, oh, this is the far enemy. This is the opposite of compassion. We need to bring a moment of, uh, of insight practice there, of pure awareness there, and to know Oh, this, this, is, this is the opposite of compassion. It feels like striking out. It also can be turning away from. You know how if somebody's suffering in front of you and you can't hold it, and maybe you're just saving yourself by turning away, but sometimes we turn away and it's a cruelty to the other person to turn away and to not be with their suffering. So there's ways that we see that this can come up in in our own lives. Actually, with awareness, just naming it, as um, Mark was saying uh, earlier today, if we just can name it, sometimes we can just see, okay, we don't need to go there. It may come up temporarily, we may feel it, it can be named, and it kind of loses its power by naming it. Oftentimes, naming things like that can lose their power because of just seeing the truth. That's what it is. And um, so that's the far enemy, which is cruelty. When compassion is there, it allows us to get closer and it allows for this tenderness of the heart to respond to whatever is there instead of the cruelty. So that's what may come up in our practice, and just to be aware of it. Um, if, the, if this far enemy gets too difficult to bear, sometimes uh, we need to just be with it with awareness for a while before we go back to metta. But if it's okay and you can stay with it, then you can return to the metta practice. So that's the way to handle it in metta practice. Stay with it, with awareness, and when it calms down a little bit, and you can bring metta back into the uh, into the what you're doing, then stay with the metta. But sometimes uh, the near enemy 
of uh, compassion arises. And that is um, overwhelming grief. It's, it's just the grief that when you're, when you're lost in, in grief all the time, it's not, I just want to make sure that uh, all of you know that it's not this a healthy grief, the healthy grieving process that allows us to, to really feel, to be honest with and feel what's coming up when we're grieving and to allow it to carry, to go on. Because if, it, if we don't allow it to come up, if it just stays down there, it's not going to help. So a healthy grieving process allows things to come up, let them be known with as much balance and metta as possible. Sometimes we get lost in it, but we find our ground again, and we can bit by bit face the grieving processes that we need to go through. The kind of grief I'm talking about is a grief where maybe we pity ourselves so much, or even another, that um, I'm just going to give you an analogy from some of the commentaries in the Buddhist commentaries. It's when uh, you see someone sinking, like in quicksand, and you can't think clearly. You can't think to maybe just go find a long stick and and say, hold on and I'll pull you out. But no, you just jump in that quicksand with another person and you get pulled down. And so both both drowned. You know, you're not able to help another because of this overwhelming grief or pity for oneself or another. So um, know when these two things arise and then see if you can name them. Stay with them with pure awareness, vipassana, or if they weaken out, then you can go back to the practice that you're doing. So with both of these, um, know that it transforms the metta practice into compassion, even maybe just temporarily, just with that person. And then as you're doing the metta practice, you choose another person and maybe that doesn't happen and you're back on metta again. It doesn't have to be bumpy. It can just be a smooth sail through it. Just recognize, oh, this is compassion. It's part of metta. Metta is its base, basically. So now I want to speak about compassion in general so that... um, and this uh, this compassion talk is kind of going through all the aspects of compassion, not necessarily just facing um, or being with the metta practice that we're doing, but generally about compassion. So as we know, uh, when we really have felt this true compassion in a moment in our lives, maybe here on the cushion, when we feel this welling of connectivity through metta, we turn towards the suffering of ourselves or of another, and there's this, it's, it feels vulnerable, but we can be there. That's a trembling, the quivering of the heart. It feels vulnerable, but we can be with it. And it's a vulnerability where the heart is opening. It's not the vulnerability of weakness. It's the opening of the heart. This is when our genuine caring can connect with the suffering of 
another person or the suffering of our own uh, heart and mind. And it becomes even more beautiful and rare when we can feel it for ourselves. Usually, um, as was brought up in in our uh, connections with you today, um, at least in one of the um, groups that I was in, we talked about how um, how we feel this open up in us sometimes, this kind of empathy for another when one person is talking about their suffering. We can feel that, you know, maybe we connect it with our own ways of suffering and then for ourselves, for others, for the world, you know, we have these these tears or this our own quivering of the heart or that trembling that we feel inside that's sort of opening us. Not to be afraid of that, but to take care of that. In our society, as we spoke about uh, today in in one of the uh, sessions I was in, we're sort of um, kind of raised to um, care for others, you know, to look towards others a lot. And it's it's not that easy. I have to speak for myself to to come back to myself and say what what can I do for myself today? <laughs> you know, I'm I'm just pulled after raising four children. I guess is habitual. Just pulled to the needs of others, and then being in the Dharma and hearing a lot of suffering, of course. Um, Somebody was asking me the other day, um, what's happening or what are you doing? And I, and I said, well, I'm doing this for so-and-so and uh, then I have to handle this for blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, what are you doing for yourself? And I honestly, I thought, and I said, I never thought about that. <laughs> and I, I got to think about that more, you know. So, but... Uh, I can do that. I just have to think about it more. So I don't want you to feel sorry for me. (laughs) But not all the time. So compassion is this kind of tender-hearted courage to be with what's difficult. You know, the pain in ourselves, the pain in others. And... um, so this is another way of saying the first noble truth. And so I want to quote this great actress and playwright who's a natural comedian, and that's Lily Tomlin. Do you all know Lily Tomlin? Most of you know. Okay. Speaking the truth of life. Quoting, reality is stressful. That was one quote. In another place, reality is a major source of stress. I try to avoid it as much as I can. <laughs> so isn't that the truth? That's how, how it goes. So in the, it's said, you know, in the Dharma, there are two wings, two wings of the Dharma. And in order for the Dharma to really fly, you know, to take off and um, to really feel the strength of, of its wings and its heart, you have to have these two components. One is wisdom and one is compassion. And you can't just come from your head all the time about what to do from the habit patterns of 
our kind of cerebral thinking about it. You really have to have a heart. And if you listen to all the great teachers, no matter what traditions they come from, if they're based in goodness, it's, um, you know, come back to the heart. Come back to the heart. Don't forget that part. So compassion is a major support for wisdom to arise. And that's why I mentioned before that um, uh, it's a major reason why the Four Noble Truths can be open to. Because it needs to open to the First Noble Truth, the truth of suffering, the truth of dukkha, in order for the rest of the Noble Truths to be explored, be known, to be realized. So in preparation for this talk, I heard, um, I, I was just, this was years ago, I was um, looking online about science and compassion. And I came up by this great talk by Dr. Stephen Borges of the, he was at that time the director of the Brain and Body Center and his expertise is neural biology. So his talk was about the origins of compassion. And it was very interesting to me to know about this scientifically and the history of it and where it comes biologically and sociologically. So his study spanned the biology of the brain and the nervous system, which has both biological and sociological implications. It sounds so highfalutin, but it's it's pretty basic. <laughs> and what he was trying to express is that we have this need as human beings for compassionate connection for one another. It's a really basic need that we have. Like, you know, when, we're, when something's going on, don't we, we reach out, don't we, to, to others and say, hey, uh, this, is, this is what happened today. And it, feel kind of bad about this. And so um, you can see in your own experience that's, and sometimes we hold back and uh, that's why we need to have more compassion for ourselves so we will reach out. So his study um, spans this biological and sociological areas and what he was trying to express is that we have this need for this connection with one another and that need is both biological and sociological. That means, he means to say, it's a natural inclination. It has this potential also, compassion has this potential to arise, and it's natural when, when we can get to it. You know, in times like this, we can get to that when we have this kind of support, supportive atmosphere. So, it, it has that potential, but developing that potential is up to us. It's not like we just, you know, willy-nilly go keep doing our life and not learn the ways that we need to incline the mind there on purpose. Uh, we just, you know, don't do that. But when we take up a course like this, we learn there's certain training that we can do, and this is the training that we're doing now. So it's up to us. What Dr. Porges did was he gave quite a unique description of compassion from the side of the giver and the side of the receiver. So I'm going to um, 
it's good information. Sometimes we put this in you know, our hearts and then we start to connect the dots for ourselves. So this is from the giver's side. Compassion is the manifestation of our biological human need to bond and engage with others, especially when in crisis. So this human need to bond and engage with others, especially when in crisis. In the Dharma, compassion is described as a quivering of the heart that wants to alleviate suffering. It's very much the same. You know, and it reaches out like I was um, describing about the green Tara that's ready to act, that's ready to step and take action with the compassion. So this is a natural biological response to approach, to alleviate suffering, to give compassion uh, in, in our action or in our words, in our deeds, to alleviate it. So most of us are familiar with the fight or flight or freeze modes um, when we're kind of in some kind of crisis. That happened to us when maybe something traumatic is experienced. But in Stanford University research that was studying compassion, it was found that a fourth response also has been discovered to be part of this natural instinct. And it was interesting to learn that this fourth response, in addition to fight, fight, or freeze, is to soothe, to give others or ourselves that kind of soothing touch, you know, just somewhere that's safe on on their bodies, or the words that help them to feel safe, feel cared for, um, or just actions, you know, the some ways that we give our help. So this compassion is the giver's side. We see that when we give, um, this is how it feels like. You know, we want to soothe. We want to give that because when we're truly feeling that compassion inside, that's what naturally happens. But a lot of times it's so covered up by many other complex things that happen with us as human beings. It, it, so it isn't always there. So from the receiver's side, there is this biological quest for safety in proximity of others where we feel safe in being close to them. The biological quest for safety in the proximity of another where we can feel safe. For example, when we're sensing pain or suffering in ourselves and we feel drawn to another, we sense that compassion in another. We feel that's a safe place to be. And it's a way where we feel that we can use a protection of another to help, to help us get through uh, that place. So we actually go for it. You know, we're actually, that's why reaching out is so important. I, I, um, when someone reaches out, I, you know, that's good. That's good to reach out. It's not like we're weak. It's like this is a biological part of being human. We need to survive. 
So compassion is really that unconditional friendliness that turns specifically towards what's difficult to bear in ourselves, difficult to bear within ourselves, or difficult to bear in others. It wants to soothe. It wants to open to, to face, to alleviate the pain. So checking into that, you know, how, how does that go for you? You, know, you hear these words, maybe you, it describes something in you that you feel sometimes. So not just to hear these words, but to know, yeah, I, I felt that sometimes. Sometimes the, the sense is in the whole body. It's a bodily sense. It's a, um, a sense that you have with your hands. You know, you, you just have the sense of giving so it's important to feel that sense within your, ourselves, to, to actually reach out um, for help and for compassion so that that connection can help us and also to know when we feel that and we're reaching out to help others. So it's interesting that when these things happen, there's some kind of deep integration or integrity of being that we feel. We feel a sense of wholeness when we can do that. Um, And it's a feeling of relief when we can actually feel it, carry it out in one way or another. It's just a feeling of relief when we can sense it in our bodies, in our minds, Today, when um, I was here and I was following the instructions that uh, Mark was giving, doing my own practice, and I um, was reaching out to someone with metta, and um, that person um, just was in an accident and is now a quadriplegic and is trying to overcome a lot of difficulties. So I was just reaching out to that to that person, I could feel, oh, this is hard to bear, you know, somebody so close. And yet, when my mind could open to that person in that moment, it could open, it was hard, but I, I just felt my whole body just vibrating. And um, it was like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> you know, felt the energy of that. And it was really a relief to be able to connect rather than to feel disconnected. So those are senses that you get when you're in practice, a sense of that kind of thing. And even though it's really tiny, really take notice of it. You know, that what I told you about was just a few moments, but it was really beautiful. It was really a relieving moment that maybe, you know, my heart could totally open to that person's experience and where that person might be this day. So there's that deep integration, you know, feeling connected to that person, feeling that integrity within myself, that sense of wholeness to be able to face the vulnerability, the emotional crisis of our lives and my life, that person's life, instead of ignoring it. So that's what happens with compassion. In some mysterious way, it makes us feel complete as a human being. So 
in different ones of my talks, I've, I've placed this story, so some of you may he- have heard this. One time I opened an old, uh, very old journal of mine, and I asked Manindra, what's the meaning of my life anyway? And I, this was in the 70s that when I met him. And um, he said, the meaning of your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. And, you know, I didn't know what that was all about then. I was really just starting on my path. But I see how true that is, that both components are really true. And uh, the compassion side of it is opening our hearts. The wisdom side of it is understanding it. In a nutshell, it's it's a lot more than that. But understanding the Dharma takes sometimes a lot of thinking about it and understanding cause and effect relationship and all of that. But opening your heart is is like an expression. It's somewhere body, mind, emotion. You know, everything's involved there. So it gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And no wonder this qualifies, this open-hearted strength and courage qualifies as inner wealth. In the Dharma, when you have compassion, you have inner wealth, and no one can take that away from you. And if you believe in further lifetimes, that that will be reborn with the new consciousness. As Manindra says, you may not believe in that, but it's true. (laughs) But Yeah, but the Buddha says, let's see for ourselves, right? So we're doing that. So... Compassion is the strength of love and courage that opens to what's difficult. When you put it in a nutshell, it's that. It's this compassion, strength of love and courage together when you face what's difficult within us or within another. So, um, let's see. So we see that in our lives we're facing this over and over again. It's so important that we know this stuff about compassion because there's so much dukkha in the world now. It's a time of epic change, and change is pain. Change is painful. So, um, and, And this change now is bringing out all kinds of things that have been covered up for a long, long time. You know, like how we've been treating the environment and racial injustice and all of that. So that that's not my forte to cover. I understand that, but um, we're talking here about other things, so I don't want to go into those details. But it's more about, can we open to all of that? Can we face that suffering that we actually feel you know, in, in our daily life? And when we're in this quietness, we feel it much more clearly everything we feel much more clearly, the pleasure and the pain, and things that we don't normally feel. As Mark was describing earlier, we, when this concentration is there, we have otherworldly experiences sometimes, out-of-our-body experiences and deep experiences of pain in our own hearts and connecting with the pain of others. It's a lot. I mean, we're not... I know I'm sitting here and everybody's really quiet and you look so angelic and you know, it's so wonderful to look out there. And 
I know it, if I see myself, I know it's Grand Central Station, you know, <laughs> here and there, and there might be feelings of bliss and calm, but it's all there, yeah. So we're constantly trying to avoid uh, opening to what's painful, and we seem to try to patch together so many moments of diversion and trying to fulfill all our cravings so that we won't need to face the truth. And this is what samsara is, you know, we're just going around this wheel, doing that all the time. And what the Buddha was teaching is how we can get off that wheel. You know, how can we go to less suffering or no suffering if we're not just trying to cover it up or chase after, you know, what we want all the time. Just sit down and, like Manindra says, if you want to know the truth, sit down, look at your own mind and your body and, you know, apply these practices and you will know. So this is a beautiful poem by David White uh, that talks about um, facing the, the truth. And this is what the Dhamma is. The Dhamma means the truth, the truth of how things are. And that's what the Buddha expounded on. So we're not, um, this is not a religion this, uh, that we're, we're practicing here. This is more a way of life, you know, a way that we can face life in an intelligent, heartfelt way. So I love the way David White puts it, because he says right out front, It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you know despair and can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in this world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. So this is really all about that first noble truth. And it's all also all about the second noble truth, which is what is the cause of suffering? And some of the causes are here, you know, center of our longing, just always longing for something different instead of facing what is. So, because we live in this electronic age and the frequency and intensity of knowing what's happening globally and steadily, it, you know, we're just so attracted to that so much. The shifting of the planet, you know, the worldwide social injustices and all of that and more, more and more and more. And we keep being attracted to that instead of taking the time to be quiet in our lives. So this is just an incredibly precious time for those of us who are offering the teachings. We're sitting here doing our practice also. But um, we understand that we have to have some kind of balance in our lives to be able to do more of this in our lives. Even in our daily life, can we bring metta and mindfulness into walking from here to there or just being kind to like somebody said today something so simple yet it was so profound like 
maybe I could bring, I'm just paraphrasing, and this person said it much more depthly. I hope it's okay that I say this. And it's um, just when you're, you're, you're not going out, uh, when you buy something, you're not going to the automatic checkout where you're just with a machine. When you go to a person and that person does your checkout for you, you don't treat that person like a machine. That's how I took it in. You can have metta. You know, that's a place to bring metta to a neutral person. You know, to maybe you just say it. You know, may you be happy. And it turns the mind there. I had a, um, just remembering now, one of, a friend of mine who's in a group of mine said that he started, he was practicing metta. And, um, uh, this is an African-American fellow who went into a store and um, somebody, when he was in the checkout line, I'm just shortening the story, was yelling out towards um, and, and saying that this person stole something and just yelling it out to the top of his lungs. And the, the checkout person was saying... Um, was looking at him and he was saying, check it out, you know, I don't have anything on me, this is what I'm buying right now. And the person far away was just shouting and and this person had been learning metta and he just shouted back, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And it just kind of stopped everybody in their tracks. You know, and so that was I just you know thought about that when I heard that story, how this person was it was just so powerful. I just came to this person because this person had been practicing metta, and if he hadn't learned those phrases, he might have now I'm maybe not him, but if that were me i and maybe not me, but sometimes I can get there. <laughs> Just ask my colleagues. I can say four-letter words like a, a sailor sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so, I, but because I know metta, and because I'm, I have some wisdom, I, I wouldn't do that. But um, that's why we're practicing. So when we, we get to a place, we can look at the person say, I hope you have a nice day today, you know, or if we know them, how are the kids today? Did they get to school? And, you know, whatever, some neutral person that you don't, how much do we do that? What if we added just that? What if we just took that out of this retreat and we added just that to our lives? The neutral person, it would greatly enhance our lives and enhance the lives of other people. So it's just so powerful. And then when we feel compassionate, you know, we can we can say something. We can, you know, reach out and touch their hand and they just know, you know, okay, I'm with you. So compassion, metta is just so, so important. Bringing awareness to those times when we feel it recognizing that it's happening, allowing it to happen when we feel it, 
take some interest in it. You know, can you get close to that feeling of compassion? This is just takes a few moments when you're feeling it in your practice. And relate to it is like, this is natural. Just like uh, it's a natural biological and sociological feeling. And this this what I'm feeling. It may feel odd because it can feel vulnerable, but this is compassion. When it feels tender, it wants to reach out or to even help ourselves. Can we know that moment? We don't take time for that. You know, we take time for what's wrong with that over there or with that that harmed me or harmed others. So how can we take time and care for ourselves. Um, so this is from going a little bit over time because this is two Dharma talks in one. <laughs> so trying to shorten it too. So I love Mark Nepple. Some of you know him, poet and a writer. Um, he went through his own deep challenges, journeyed through health crises and personal life crises. And uh, this really touched me deeply when he said, and quoting him, having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. They can just, you know, the suffering that lands there and it turns whatever is in here into pearls of wisdom instead of just, you know, keep suffering from it. So facing reality with a noble heart, this is what compassion is. Not easy because we have to face what's difficult. I looked up the um, in the etymology dictionary what compassion meant. And it means together with suffering. I, I, I didn't know that. I, I know a little bit of, you know, Spanish. And, well, with those words, con, or this word is compassion, but compasión means with suffering. So it's coming together with that, connecting with it. We talked about today how just when something comes up, can you just touch it? You don't need to stay with it, you know, and get involved with it so much. But if suffering comes up in your heart, some kind of pain, and it's really overwhelming, can you just touch it and stand back a little? Just touch it and move back. And and that's the way you can handle it with awareness. And then with metta, can you just touch it with metta and move back touch it just a little bit move back you don't need to make a big deal about where it came from or you know maybe you can take all these steps to overcome it and just feel it so it's like, as I said in the, one of our sessions today I just remembered my um my little granddaughter, she was little then, Emily, but she just graduated from college. And now it's like, where did the time go? And um, I was babysitting her, and she was a, um, almost two, and 
she did something and she bumped herself and scraped herself and I said something like, oh, what can I do? What should I do? You know, I'll go get a Band-Aid. I'll go get something. What does your mama put on it? You know, she was very, um, this is a very intelligent young lady. She, she's, I got to brag about her. <laughs> she graduated top of her class. And um, in, um, in construction, <laughs> in construction management, and she had a job before she even graduated at one of the top places in Hawaii to get a job. So anyway, she was small and she was very intelligent. And I asked her about what to do, what to do. You know, I... I, I Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.